My name is Adrian Sykes and welcome to a series of very special podcasts in association with Google. Union Black is an online multi-format content series across YouTube and Google Arts and Culture, featuring a curated collection of videos, audio documentaries, podcasts, stories and photographs. It takes us on a journey celebrating the contributions of Black British music artists, creatives, professionals and scenes. Told by the Black British music community, these stories demonstrate the undeniable influence and impact of Black British music and culture in the UK and beyond. This story and piece of content, the Black British producers behind Global Albums, is a series of podcasts that accompany the visual series with additional content that will spotlight a cross-generation of Black British music producers who have had an international impact. In this episode, we talk to legendary producer Dennis Bavell, the man who not only produced incredible records, but created a genre, Lover's Rock, a sound that epitomised Black Britain. He tells us about sound systems and how they played a part in his life, how he came to work with Linton Kwesi Johnson, how a man synonymous in the world of reggae produced an iconic punk band, and of course, how Janet Kaye's single Silly Games changed the musical landscape. Here's Dennis's story. I decided that I would indulge in not only reggae, but other music which I loved and could play and had the knowledge of. So one day, some youngsters contacted me and they had been reading that I had been a Jimi Hendrix fan and that I loved loud guitars. And, and they were a punk band making their first album. And this group was called The Pop Group. And I thought, oh, that's a novel name, The Pop Group. <clears throat> and uh, it, was, it was sort of reminiscent of Bob Dylan's group, The Band. Yes. You know, and so I said, yeah. And they had this tune, it's called Beyond Good and Evil. And I went into the studio and we did the single, Beyond Good and Evil, and we didn't have another tune ready. So it was suggested that turn the, the, the master tape over backwards and then play a new drum track on it. And the other day I listened to that tune, it's called 338, and I had given the drummer the Silly Games pattern, and he's playing that on a punk tune going backwards, right? Um... And that group, yeah, it was it was definitely one of my wildest, yeah. you know, things to be to be involved with. And um, then they wanted to do an album, and then on the heels of the pop group album, I was contacted by Chris Blackwell, who said he just signed the first female, all female punk band, and would I be interested in producing? So I said, yeah. And that group turned out to be a group called The Slits. And that was their debut album. So by then, I'd made my mark in the sort of non-reggae world as a producer. And um, I'd also, I'd produced the first recordings of Steel Pulse, you know, and um, Linton Cressy Johnson, whom I met at the Four Aces, Linton. Really? Yes. Okay. Matumbi had been given a sort of residency, or at least once every two months a gig at the Four Aces, on a Sunday night where groups that played on a Sunday night were famously booed off the stage after three or four songs because the, the, the audience weren't particularly yeah. into live yeah. music. Just give, give, them, the give them the tunes they want. Yeah. Sound system. So being affiliated with the sound system, I took the opportunity 
to learn all the, the latest Dennis Brown, the latest Gregory Isaacs, the latest Burning Spear, all the, the artists yeah, that were popular on, you know, John Holt, all the artists that were popular on the sound systems. But groups tended to play much older reggae, you know, and not knew what was current. So we learned all those tunes. And when we went up there on the Sunday night, we dropped those tunes. And also we learned how to do dub from the stage. You know, tank, 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 yeah. tank, with really a get down and stay in time and come back like yeah. a dub record. Yeah. So you just do an extended version, you run an extended version. Oh, sound time. system, yeah. yeah. So um, people quite warm to that. They never clapped, but most importantly, they never mm -hmm. booed. Yeah. So Linton came now to interview us about that because he was then... A, a reporter and working for the BBC um, World Service. And when he came, the group said, you better talk to him, Dennis. So I was designated the, the spokesperson. spokesman. Yeah. And um, whilst we talked about it, and, and at the end of us talking, this interview went, you know, I want to try and put some music to my poetry. And my friend Vivian Weathers tells me that if I'm going to do that, I've got to do it with you because you know how to capture the reggae sound. So I was like, okay. Then about two years later, he calls me up and said, right, remember that? Yeah, you said you was going to help me. Yeah, I got some time in the studio this weekend. Let's go. Absolutely. We went into the studio that weekend and came out on the other side on the Monday morning with Poet and the Roots, Dread, Beat and Blood. Right, that was his first, first album, yeah. Yeah. And since then, we've toured the world, him and me, you know, I even came out of retirement because once um, Matumbi had sort of ended for me, I built a recording studio. I was working primarily in my own studio and I had no time to go out touring. You know, um, my first customer in my studio, Studio 80, was a man called Ruchi Sakamoto from yeah, Japan. Japan yeah. um, Sadly passed recently. I know, yes. Rest in peace, Rue. In fact, Don Letts had been in Japan with The Clash and had met Rue, who he came back and said to me, um, Sakamoto wants uh, your telephone number. And I was going, yeah, give it to him. He's going, oh, good, because I already did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. And then uh, Rue called up and decided that we were going to use my studio again, but my studio's not been finished, built yet. And he went, well, that's it. I want to use it before you do. And I thought, that's a strange request. A man calling me from Japan saying he wants to use my studio. He wants to be the first person to use my studio. And then he says, I've got some equipment over in Germany. I'll send it over to you, right? And we're like, this is a hoax. The guy's living in Japan. And he's going to send me equipment from Germany. I'm going, this is a wind-up, <laughs> yeah. right? But then uh, an Arctic arrived outside the studio looking for a guy called Dennis Bovell to, to sign for all this equipment <laughs> that was coming from Germany. Amazing. And then I realized he'd been working in Kraftwerk's studio oh, okay. in Germany. And the equipment that he had over there, he's going to send it to London so that when he came to London, we could use it in my studio. And then I thought, this is real. And then I had to go to Sir George Martin and borrow or rent 24 tracks of Dolby's 
because I wanted to run the, the, the session at 30 IPS and I needed some noise reduction. So for those who don't know, this kind of dive into the mm. technical thing and just give them a little bit more well, insight into that. 30 IPS is the speed that the tape ran at 30 inches per second. And it's so fast and uh, that it leaves a shh as it's going by the, the playhead. Mm. So to quell that shh, which is noise, to reduce that noise, there's systems that have been invented called Dolby. And um, they're usually uh, on two tracks, but to have Dolby on every track of a 24-track is quite an expensive venture. But it saves you that noise of the shh, you know, going around in yeah. the background as you're recording because it, it can cancel that out, right? So I had to borrow some from Air Studios, which I did. And um, Ruth came over and uh, he brought with him a Prophet 10. Now, we'd seen in this country from sequential circuits an instrument called a Prophet 5, but we'd not seen the Prophet 10, which was a double manual Prophet. And he brought that, and I was like in awe. And we started to record with it, and he recorded the drums, the bass, you know, just like I would do normally when, if I'm playing all myself. But he was playing all himself from a digital point of view, from samples on a keyboard. And uh, one of the songs we recorded is a song called Riot in Lagos. Now, that song rose to popularity because a DJ on Radio 1, he, he hammered that track. Yeah. And lots of DJs would meet me and go, what, you did that in 1980? And, and recently they re-released that album, and the album's called B2 Unit, and it was, I didn't know then, but it was Japan's first electronic dub album, you know, uh, and given the work that Ruchi had done with Yellow Magic, this was just an extension and into reggae, the dub phenomenon, you know, and he wanted me to do it, and, and I was quite honored that he chosen me because when I went to Japan uh, the first time on the strength of having worked with him people were bowing down yeah. it's a strange transfer from well not a strange transfer I mean it's a different it world <laughs> but yeah it's a different world it was, thank you moving from that world that you're very comfortable in that you know really well into a world that of punk and yeah. guitars and electronica that yeah. may not have been as familiar to you. I mean, how do you walk into that first of is, is it a challenge? Well, how do you meet the expectation of the artist on the other side? Before I met Ruichi, I'd been a fan of Yellow Magic Orchestra. In fact, Chris Blackwell once gave me an album of Yellow Magic Orchestra and said, tell me what you think of this. And I loved it. And, and you know, the Space Invaders tune. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, computer games. It's funny you mention that because that tune amongst the black club crowd and black people in general because of that bass line. Yeah. It was one of the people who like, yeah, I get it. I get it. And it was the first electronic thing I heard. So... Big, big, big tune. Big tune. So for me to be meeting the guy who created that and for him to be wanting me to do dub on his new solo album... Listen, <laughs> it, it was a challenge that I rose to. 
and the slits and I mean obviously again guitars and yeah. I mean I read someone that Chris said he wanted it clean but probably not too clean because it's punk I mean you know there's that thing about how do I kind of keep the edge but also bring it into a world that's going to be mainstream which is where you, well, where you I gave it the reggae um, treatment uh, where the drums were heavy and loud in front the bass you know and the, but the guitars were so girly that I I had to kind of not beef them up, but spread them out with effects, you know. And um, Viv Albertine, in fact, once we were in the studio and she wanted to play an acoustic guitar. She was taking rather long about it. So I said, give me the guitar. And I went into the studio and I played something on the acoustic guitar. I was like, it needs to be like this. And everybody's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she starts crying. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? She's going, no one's ever going to believe that I played that. And I saw it and I said, rub it off. And everyone's going, no, 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 that's what it is. I said, erase. And so it was erased and I said to her, go in there and do as close to what I did with your ability and see if that makes you happy. And she went in, did whatever it was she did, and everybody thought, yeah, that's good. And it was great. And she's often thanked me for not forcing my musicality on the slits. Another time when we're, we did a tune called New Town, and this tune is depicting um, the new drug of television and the new drug of football. Right, and she goes, New Town, where everyone goes around sniffing Televigina or taking footballina. Right, I go, wow, New Town, New Town. And um, I said, hmm, great, but this tune needs a bit of percussion. The group didn't have oh, a yeah. percussionist. So I armed myself with a spoon, an ashtray, a box of matches, um, yeah, three or four things like that, because I was going to, in the percussion, depict drug-taking. The spoon and the ashtray, the ashtray and the box of matches, I would shake the box of matches like a shaker, and then occasionally take one out and strike, and then um, on, on the ashtray, I'd hit the ashtray with the spoon. Bing! You know, in kind of... Um, a rotary right. kind of, you know, a kind of juggling yeah, that yeah. goes, bing, you know, and they sat in amazement in the control room. So I was only going, our producers, leave me. <laughs> our producers lost it. And now when I listen to that tune, I urge you all to listen to that tune. Yeah, please. Yeah, I, I have to listen to it as well. Newtown, you will hear some strange shaking of box of matches and striking yeah. of one and uh, a ping of a spoon, which was used for heroin taking, <laughs> on an ashtray, which was used for smoking. Yeah, but it, don't be alarmed. It's only Dennis Bavell playing percussion people. Yeah. <laughs> no one's actually doing that. <laughs> but it was my way of cheekily um, putting some kind of percussion to this new town, you know, and um, yeah. That that made me their hero. It was like, oh yeah, because <laughs> I wasn't allowed to play on the record. I was just allowed to just just so, produce. So this is me barging in. Oh, percussion! I'll do that. <laughs> and Linton clearly is is our poet. Yes, he, he, he's our messenger. The laureate. 
yeah, and through the seventies, through the through the eighties, he was the guy who, you know, who who was the clarion call, absolutely, so, uh, and, In, yeah, and told people how it was. One of the points of um, the high points of recording with Linton was that he written a poem about a man called Blair Peach. Yes. Now, I was like one of the people who said to him, what's the death of Blair Peach got to do with us as black people in this country? He calmly said to me, that man came from New Zealand on an anti-fascist march in South Hall and ended up losing his life. It should be noted that black people, right, should appreciate that he was so much in our corner that it cost him his life. And I thought, Linton, yeah. And But then when he was going, everywhere we go, we hear people say, everywhere we go, it's the talk of the dead at the SPG, them a murderer. Murderer, we can't make them get no furtherer. The SPG, them a murderer. Murderer, we can't make them get no furtherer. So I was like, Linton, you're taking on the might of the paramilitary, <laughs> right? Them guys don't play no. Them kill Blair Peach and he was a white guy. You, are gonna, yeah. <laughs> they're going to come around your house, and kick your door in, <laughs> accuse you of something that you, you didn't do and justify killing you. So he's going, hang on a minute. I'm not saying that they are. I'm saying... I hear people saying that, and I'm wondering if it's true. So it's like, yeah. clever, yeah. very clever, yeah. my man. Because yeah. it, it became apparent to me that that's what he was saying. He said, "Everywhere me go, me hear people say." Right? <laughs> He's not saying. Yeah. I'm telling. I'm saying. I'm hearing people yeah. saying, yeah. and I'm wondering that if it's true. SPG, right? So I said, "Do me a favor. Don't put my name on that record." <laughs> <laughs> he, went, he went, you're joking. We did it, and we must take the credit for it. I'm going, trembling as I was. I was thinking, SPG is going to stop me on the road now and go, who's your name? Dennis Bobby. Ah, ah, you work yeah, with that I, guy, Linton. Yeah. Right, we were looking for him. Yeah, yeah. And we got you. Yeah, yeah you'll do. <laughs> and obviously, Linton's, for me, other great thing is his commentary on the Deptford fire. His stance, absolutely. I mean, yeah. He, he was adamant that it was an incendiary device uh, that was thrown into that party. And people had witnessed a car driving by and throwing something, um, all that. But he was um, appalled by the fact that after 13 young black children had lost their lives in a fire, there were no mm -hmm. messages of condolence from the palace. Yeah. For instance, I mean, you know, if that had been 13 white children, it would have been the Queen would have gone and visited the spot and, you know, or the Late Prime flowers. Minister or something, right? But I did another song called 13 Dead and Nothing Said with Karen Wheeler, who happened to be a friend of uh, the sister of the girl whose party it was. 17, 17 of January 81. You know, um, Karen Wheeler w was singing that, and she was a friend of the family. Yeah, it, it was it was an awful event, you know, and still no one's been brought to book for it. No, I don't like to, but say so that is why Linton and the work you've done with Linton is so important because it chronicles 
a period of history. Absolutely. It speaks of British culture. It speaks of our experience. Another poem that he um, dazzled me with was once called License for Kill. And this is about black deaths in police custody, you know. And um, he was saying that the police have got a license to yeah. kill. He said, if you don't believe me, ask Maggie Thatcher or ask, um, you know, ask Tony Blair. You know, Tony Blair at one point, you know, ask Tony Blair if he was aware or care about the license for kill that North Police feel them got. You know, um, it felt like police were doing it with impunity, like... Linton is just, I mean, he's a, he's a hero. And, absolutely. Yeah, and, he knows how to string words together to mean what he wants to say and to be um, what's on everyone else's tongue. Yeah. I mean, I think the one thing I've always thought about Linton is that it's... I never think of it as being provocative, but I think what he's doing... He always as does positive. It, he's, yeah. He raises the issues and makes you think about them and makes you very, very aware and then go and investigate. And that is, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful education because it's not just a, the music's wonderful, but the educational value and what Absolutely. he's teaching you top, is something top, is, is something that is. I've been around the world with him and yeah. seen the act, the reaction of people, and in every place, even if they don't speak English, they know how to speak Jamaican. <laughs> they know how to speak what Linton said, <laughs> right? You know, um, I, I called him up this morning. I said, Linton. Somebody told me you're going to get a Nobel Prize. I'm saying, are you acting that? <laughs> <laughs> but wouldn't it be great? I mean, who deserves it more, right? Absolutely. Who deserves it more? Let's talk about your music because we kind of we skated over mm. various parts of it, mm. and I've taken up so much of your time. But I need to, to need to talk to go back. Let's dial back the years a little bit. Okay. And let's talk about, of course, the great Mutombi. Okay. Because again. I'm just going to fanboy you again. Mm. After tonight is, <laughs> is, 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 a, is a tune. Big tune. In um, fact, that tune has the notoriety of being the most covered reggae song from these parts ever. There's been no fewer than 23 different versions yeah. I of did that read that song. Somewhere. And uh, most notably, the first version that I heard that wasn't our version was by Brent Dow. Well, now, Brent, I've ever heard of. Well, I will tell you, Brent Dow was the lead singer of a group called the Melodians. I know the Melodians. And they though. gave us the song by the rivers oh, of Babylon, before Boney M. Yeah, no, right? that's The original. Yeah. Brent Dow was the leader right, and okay, that, uh, sang yeah. that song. So can you imagine a man of that popularity singing Baby After Tonight? And then um, uh, uh, people like Levi Roots made a version of it uh, recently. And uh, UB40 made a, did a version of it. It's a great you know. tune, though. But you yes, know, before that, when Matumbi first started, you were more politically motivated from a song point of view, right? We because, were. You know, you're talking about yeah. you know, going back to yeah, particularly around those times of the you know, power reversal. That's my song. <laughs> yeah, you're right. So, well, the, the thing is that when Matumbi was um, unveiled as a reggae band, a lot of people thought we committed professional suicide. Why? Because Groups in those days didn't specialize in one genre only. 
You know, groups in those days did a bit of pop, did a bit of rock, did a bit of Otis Redding, did a bit of R&B, Sam and Dave, hold on, I'm coming. You know, black groups anyway around. They were expected to just entertain. But I thought, mm-mm, we're not doing that. Toots and the Matos play reggae, right? Pioneers play reggae. Right, you know what so I mean? We're, we're gonna... So we're going to play reggae. Albeit that we're coming from England, we're going to play reggae, right? And um, in fact, ironically, our first gig was in uh, Alcumbry, in the USAF base, joint base with the RAF in Alcumbry. And we was told, don't play no reggae, right? Because you're playing to a bunch of Americans, right? They're not going to understand it. So the first tune we played some Booker T and them did you know, and they loved it. And then the next tune we're going, stick it up, mister. <laughs> and then we found ourselves showing them how to dance to this and go, oh, this is island music. Y'all boys are from the islands, huh? You know, and we got away with it in the non-commission. Pat Kelly voiced uh, an interest in having us as his backing band, which we accepted because that was a great honour. Yeah. Pat Kelly was a great, huge... Great, great singer. Right? Great singer. So we became Pat Kelly's backing band. And then Ken Booth came through <laughs> with the same request and we became Ken Booth's backing band. Then Johnny Clark came through with the same request. We became Johnny Clark's backing band. So all around the UK, as those big artists were playing, we were playing and people were going, Matumbi, yeah, that's the group that played with them, man. And musicians in Jamaica were going, yeah, Matumbi, if it wasn't for them, we'd be touring England. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? And so during all of that, right, Lloydie Coxon again came with the idea to bring Iroy, who was a Tosa rapper, to rap with a live band, because before then, the Tosas, like Uri, um, Big Ute, all them, and they came and they were all on the sound systems. But to have a Tosa who could do it live with a band that could do reggae live and do the back, that was a phenomenon. Lloydie Coxon's, that was Lloydie Coxon's idea. And then we did that and catapulted to to notoriety because Matumbi could do anything yeah. with any yeah. band yeah. and that was when we decided to record After Tonight for ourselves and Man In Me and have our own label and go our own way. But before that, we were signed to Trojan Records only because we wanted a deal. Right. We went along with them wanting to release a version of Hot Chocolate's Brother Louie which was political in its yeah. own way. It was, but that was also a cover, right? Because that was a cover. Yeah, but that was it. Brother yeah. Louis, hot chocolate. Yeah, yeah but brother, yeah, but, bro, but hot chocolate covered. Was no, that, did they not cover it as well. Hot chocolate wrote it, but a group in America made it more popular right, than okay. them before they right, okay. did their version. Okay. So it was always thought of that American group's tune, but Errol Brown wrote right, that. Okay, okay, and um, we decided to do a version of that simply because. 
Um, in the studio we were recording, a studio in Wimbledon called R.G. Jones. And R.G. Jones was a great studio. I mean, people like Cliff Richards recorded there. In fact, while we were recording there, a group called the Average White Band were recording yeah. their Pick Up The Pieces yeah. in, in the same time. Right. I, mean, I was talking to Seamus recently and he's going, yeah, we were doing the same thing at the same time, you know, Matumbi and the Average White Band. And um, in the studio was a Mellotron. A much talked about hated piece of synthesizer that the orchestral people in England were getting up in arms about because it put, according to their um, estimation, it put orchestra string players out That's of work. <laughs> and so there was this Mellotron in R.G. Jones' studio, and it belonged to Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones. We pleaded with them to let us use it because it had been used on that hot chocolate tune brother louis oh, yeah. so we made a version not intending for release but to sell for dub plates to well, sound systems yeah. because sound systems were very much into reggae versions of yeah. pop tunes yeah. at that time right so we did it and then after we would played all our really serious songs to trojan they weren't impressed but when they heard that cover verse they went yeah yeah we'll put that out yeah. <laughs> and it came out as Matumbi's first release on Trojan. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I was the singer. The singers were not happy that they were just singing back and forth. Right. You're sitting there playing guitar and singing, and we're like two girls singing back and <laughs> vocals to you, right? And they weren't happy about that. But it was Matumbi's first release. And um, we did that, and then we fell out with Trojan because we'd done a song called Running In And Out Of My Life. And this song was a, a Philly beat song written by a guy called Bernard Dennison. And um, we recorded it, and it was in conjunction with Carlin Music. And Carlin were funding it, and Trojan were our record company. But as soon as the record got TV, and uh, this, they had a TV program called 45, and this was um, hosted by Emperor Roscoe. Oh, goodness. I yeah, think it, lived a, a, it lived a short life. It probably only yeah. had about two or three episodes. That's a, that's a real blast of blast. I mean, Emperor Roscoe, for those who don't know, was, was one of the great Radio 1 DJs. Absolutely. He was the, the great Radio 1 the DJ, Emperor uh, Roscoe. 70s. Yeah. Uh, English guy with an American accent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was always weird, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, this show called 45 was recorded in Manchester in the same studio that they recorded Coronation Street. And we got lost in the studio, and I managed to meet Ken Roach. Ken Roach, yeah, who right? plays um, Ken Barlow. Yeah, <laughs> in, in Coronation yeah. Street. And I said, excuse me, um, could you show us the way out? He's going, I've been trying to find the way out of here for many a year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. He's That's a comedian, as well. yeah, yeah. he's funny. Yeah. Now, now show us the exit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and um, when that show was to be aired, we did an episode with um, Lindsay DePaul. Lindsay DePaul. We did uh, the episode that Lindsay DePaul is singing that tune, No Honestly. We're showing our age here, right? You do right. You, know, you know that. I'm 70. <laughs> I don't know about you. <laughs> I'm not that far behind you, so yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm proudly 70. Likewise. And um, yeah, Lindsay DePaul, No Honestly, and then Matumbi, but they didn't call us Matumbi. We changed our name to Westside. For what reason? Because it was a reggae tune. Right. It was it was a Philly tune, right. right? And only three of us went on that show because the rest of the band got the sack. And only the singers, which fortunately I was one wow. of them, there was a, the three of us. There was Errol Pottinger, 
Bevin Fagan and myself are like a three-piece, you know, American band. We got yeah, dressed up and, uh, and we're doing, dancing. Yeah, we're doing the dance, all that, right? And um, Trojan decided we'll take over from here, right? And Carlin went, all right then, off you go. And nothing happened from there. So we weren't happy about that. We were chosen about that. And so eventually we'd gone into the studio and recorded some stuff. And Trojan told us, quite frankly, one day, we've lost the tapes. We don't know where they are. So that angered us, and we decided, right, we're not recording with you lot anymore. And we went off to record on our own, me being the engineer of a studio in the West End, Gooseberry Studios, right, where people like Labby Sifri came to Rafferty, you know, people like that came because it was an inexpensive studio. And in fact... um, Gary Newman was working in there. And there's a story about Gary Newman. He was working recording that Our Friends Electric. And um, it was with my assistant, who was in engineering for that. And I'd been working on City Games. And the two tunes came out about the same time on the same label, Warners. And then Our Friends Electric was at number one and City Games at number two in the charts. You know, I was like, wow, what what about that? You know, anyway, we (laughs) were... Matumbi. So we left and uh, decided we were going to record our own songs and um, recorded After Tonight and The Man In Me. And then Trojan wrote to us and said, hey, we've got a contract on you. You better come back or we're going to sue. So we were obliged to go back to Trojan. And they released an album called The Best of Matumbi with the same tracks that they told us they'd lost sometime prior on some of the songs that we were guide vocals you know but by then we'd gone heavily into orchestration and um we did a version of the um law of the land the temptations yeah. tune with a huge wicked kind of um orchestra on it and and also we did a version of um cooling the gangs funky stuff can't get enough that funky stuff and we did can't get enough of that reggae, reggae stuff <laughs> and when we had that song uh reggae stuff as our release, we were told that we were going to do an Ethiopian famine benefit at a place called the Sundown in Edmonton. Used to be right on the corner. That's right. There's a little there now. Yeah. <laughs> and um, the group that we were going to be supporting was Bob Marley and the Wailers. Yeah. Whatever happened to them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, we, we got recognised as being able to hold our own on a stage with the Wailers. And for me, that was accolade, you know. So we just went everywhere. And then we were invited to open uh, for Ian Drury and the Blockheads and Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. And that exposed us to another audience, you know, uh, of, um, dare I say, white people (laughs) in the UK, right? Because every night, Drury would invite me to come and play guitar on the last tune of their set was... Sex and drugs and rock and roll, <laughs> you know. And I'd come on, and uh, it, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Then on the back of that, we got invited to open for Peter Tosh when he was doing his tour with Mick Jagger. I'm going to walk and don't look back, that tune, yeah, yeah. right? And so we opened for him all over Europe and that. And Matumbi's notoriety was growing, and EMI signed us. And um, we made a tune for a TV program called Empire Road. The short-lived Empire Road. Yes, um, that was the the show that heralded the acting career 
of um, the comedian Lenny Henry. Sir Lenny Henry. Yeah, Sorry, Lenny. Yeah, Empire yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Road. Yeah, and he played the son of Norman Beaton, a grocer, you know, in that Empire Road. And we'd done the theme tune. And in fact, we never played that tune on stage, right? Uh, we were on, in Belgium one night, and um, we decided to play it as an encore. After we played it, people were, yeah, one more, one more. Yeah, let's do Empire Road. We went on, and and as soon as we started the tune, Empire Road, the audience were upset. It was like, Whoa. <laughs> that was when we re realized that people in Belgium can see BBC One. <laughs> and they were watching that. And Peter Tosh said, you got a tune like that and you save it to the last. And we go, we did know it was yeah, popular. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Yeah. He's going, boy, I don't know Next night. Well, of course. I mean, that's move right up the set. Move up the set. You know what I mean? No more, no more encore. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's right, isn't it? But what about your forays into the world of dub, which is, again, something you've been incredibly famous for some unbelievably great dub albums. Well, when I started on doing a solo career, it pissed off certain members of the band, namely the singers, because they accused me of being in direct competition with the band, making singing songs um, like um, Raindrops or Blood I Go Run, them tune the Rowing Down the River. Those are Dennis Bovell solo tunes, yeah. right? And in fact, there was a time when one of my tunes was in the, the reggae charts and the Black Echo charts, it was at number one. And Matumbi's tune was down at number eight. And I was going, see, now yeah. you're at number one and we're yeah. at number eight. Yeah. You uh, uh, thinning the sound of the group, yeah. right, and in competition with yourself. Yeah. So I came with the idea, I'll stop singing. I'll make dubs from now on. And that was not in competition with the band, right? And it saved my skin. <laughs> And allowed you to still be creative and yeah. go a bit out there and do your thing. Absolutely. So I, I made I, I made an album called Strictly Dubwise, yeah. you know. But before that, I'd made albums of the Fourth Street Orchestra yeah. from uh, my time in Broccoli, where I'd um, had the pleasure of involving people like Eddie Thornton, uh, Rico Rodriguez, Steve Gregory, and... Uh, Michael Rose, Bammy. Bammy yeah, is, yeah. he's the saxophone player with Jules Holland right at the moment. I mean, and so was Rico, the trombone yeah, yeah, player Rico, with Jules yeah, yeah. before he passed away. Rest in peace, my daddy. And uh, Eddie Thornton, of course, was at one time the roommate of Jimi Hendrix and played a lot with Georgie Fame. They were Georgie Fame's resident wow. horn section, oh, right? right? Him and Steve Gregory, trumpet, saxophone, they were with Georgie Fame all the time. They also had done a stint with Boney M. And Steve Gregory um, had done saxophone stuff with um, Van Morrison. And um, most notably, his most famous piece of saxophone is the intro on George Michael's Careless Whisper, that wah, 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 Steve Gregory did that. And though he was a neighbor, and I had invited him into my band with Linton, the Dove Band, yeah. at the time when he was um, gigging with Wet, 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 what? you know, so. Strange kind of. Yeah, well, see, that's the thing of the UK, you know, since the days of the equals, Eddie Grant, um, there was two black guys and two white guys. And it was very much like um, Booker T and the MGs on the other side of the ocean, right? Two blacks and two whites. And you know that that 
collaboration, that mixture of um, multicultural um, groups always rang good here in the UK for the simple fact that Booker T and the MGs were enormously loved in this part of the world. In fact, I shudder to think that he even knows what cricket is, right? And um, <laughs> and they use his tune, dun, 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 so limbo, so limbo for cricket yeah, on BBC yeah. Two, right? He's probably thinking... I get some money from England all the time. <laughs> but that, I mean, again, we talked earlier on about how the influence of the UK and that kind of melting pot of sounds yeah. and meetings. I mean, how important to your music is that kind of that clash of kind of black and white? It's a great hybrid. That kind of that, that, that sharing of ideas. It's a great hybrid. In fact, when I was approached to do some work with Boy George, my first response was, George, I can't be seen with you. You're a convict. That's not, that's not good for my, my street cred. He saw the funny side of that. Because the first tune he wanted me to play bass on was a tune called Pentonville Blues. And he'd been writing about his experiences in Pentonville prison. So I remarked, George, I can't, I can't do it. You know, I said, send me the tape and I'll play it and send you back the bass line. And so I employed the services of my young daughter um, to be my sound engineer right. at home in the studio that we call the kitchen, right? <laughs> and it was in the kitchen because sometimes we'd have to go, stop banging those pots and pans, <laughs> right? And so because we're recording, you know, and um, it blossomed from there because uh, a fellow called Richard Stevens, who was the drummer in my dub band uh, with my first put together of the dub band with Linton. And he left us to go and be the drummer with Boy George. And he rose from being the drummer to the producer of Boy George album, right? Um, Boy George Records. And he called me back to go, Dennis, come, will you, and play? Because uh, when I wrote the music for a TV show called The Boy Who Won the Pools, it did very, very well. And I got Steve Gregory to play the saxophone bit that I wanted and the theme tune, you know. And, uh, yeah, it, it went down very, very well. In fact, a lot of people have been writing recently to say that they should bring that series back. Looking back, it's 50-odd years. You've worked with some incredible artists. Mm -hmm. You've made some unbelievable records. You've created an entire genre that the world knows about that didn't exist before, which is a thing in itself. Yeah. Did the little boy that came from Barbados at 12 think that this was ever going to be his path? Was that? Well, the little boy that came from Barbados made that his path. He walked through the forest with a machete, right? <laughs> and mashed it all the way through. In every genre that I had a go in, I managed to have some success because I thought about it and went, for the juggler of whatever it is I was doing. In fact, one time, a friend, Jerry McCabe, he was the, the owner of the Astoria. And also, uh, back in the day, Mr. Bees in Peckham and um, the Night Angel and uh, Café de Paris, right? All these clubs. <laughs> and he, he was my friend because we dared to go to him when he had Mr. Bees in Peckham and say... You don't have any reggae groups in here. You got Curtis Mayfield. You got you know all these. You, got, you ain't got no reggae band. So we proposed that we be the reggae. You give us a chance, and he went, 
Oh, yeah, why should I do that? Because if you don't, we could disrupt services for you. Right? <laughs> and this is a big guy. He was Mr. Ireland. <laughs> Nobody would speak to him in that way, but we dared to do that. And he went, ho, 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 ho. He says, I tell you what, come and play. If you play shite, I'll throw the first bottle. <laughs> right? So we accepted. And we went, and I made very good friends with him. In fact, a friend of his called Tini used to make my shirts that I, that I wore in Matumbi, the red, green, and gold shirts, red, green, and gold tie. You know, she, she was my outfitter, right, for Matumbi. And, and your stylist. Yeah, that, my stylist. And Jerry and me were great friends, and he said to me, you know, I think that um, Get Along Without You Now would make a great pop tune, a great disco tune. Because, of course, he's listening to disco all night long. He, he, he was the boss of the Whiskey A Go-Go, right? yeah. which suddenly became the WAG. Yeah. On, on the corner of Wardour Street and Gerrard Street, I'm working in Gerrard Street, which is about 40 metres away from the club, right? And we're friends since he had um, the, the club in Peckham, right? And he knows of my musicality because he's seen Matumbi play. He's seen me do stuff with Lloydie Coxon and Castro Brown. And now he wants to try me out on a new genre. He's going, bet you couldn't make a disco record. I'm going, of course I can. What do you want? And he goes, you know that song? Uh-huh, uh-huh, gonna get along without you now. I'm going, well, you're pushing the butt out of there a bit, Gerald. <laughs> to know if that can be transformed into disco. If anyone can do it, you can. So here's six bottles of uh, Blue Nun. Go to the studio <laughs> and get on with it, right? So I employ the services of my good friend Phil Towner, who's a drummer. He played with Tina Charles. He played with a group called New Music. Uh, New Music was a group that made this tune, living by numbers, adding to history, living by numbers. They were old school friends of mine. Tony right? Mansfield? Tony Mansfield, absolutely. So they were old friends of mine. And Nick Straker. Yeah, a little bit of jazz. A little well. bit of jazz. Before that, he made um, that, I walk in the park. Oh, right. yeah. Now, he was the original keyboard player of Matumbi. When well, Matumbi okay. started, he was the keyboard player. But along the way, he thought, no, I don't want to play regular, but I'm going to play some pop. And he went off to uh, do a solo career, a very successful one, yeah. in fact. So I brought him back with Phil Towner, with John Kapai, guitarist, and myself playing bass to make that disco version for Viola Wills. Uh-huh, uh-huh, gonna get along without you now. And we did it, and it went number five in the charts, and Joey was going, let's do an album, right? And we did that song, If You Could Read My Mind, Love. And Viola had done, in the meantime, um, Dare to Dream, you know. And, uh, yeah, sadly she passed away. But that was my enter into the disco world, you know. And um, Jerry was the person who kind of, you know, initiated that. And then I was known that I could do whatever with whatever if I wanted to or if I was allowed. But your thing was always about whatever situation I've, I've put myself in, I'm going to make this work for me. You yeah. See, this is that kind of sense of pushing through. I'm going to make myself a... proud of it. Yeah. And if I'm proud of it, I'll argue with anyone how good it is. And this is really difficult. I have no idea whether you can answer this, Dennis. But if you were to choose three tracks from your career that you kind of go, you know what, I might set these above 
anything else, would you be able to do that? Um, Louise Lamarck, most definitely. That was the beginning of me um, being launched into the the music world and people kind of recognising that I was capable of doing anything. There's that. And then um, I think Silly Games, for certain. Then I would have to say Viola Wells, you know, get along with that, you know, and all that. But the album I made with Josh Stone stands out, you know, above a lot of things because Richard Stevens, the drummer that left my band to join with Boy George, he was also playing drums for Josh Stone. And one day he called me up and said, Josh wants to write with you. I was like, what do you mean? He wants to compose with you. He wants to write songs with you. I was like, really? Okay, yeah, tell her I'm a fan. I'm ready to do that. And so I went to the studio and played bass on a tune that she was recording with a producer called Jonathan Shorten and Richard Stevens, and they invited me to come and play bass. The tune's called Wake Up, and I played what was required. And uh, at the end of playing it, she said, hmm, I'm going to get Damien on this. I went, who? Damien Marley. She said, yep. <laughs> and I went, you do that, girl, and I'll be, I'll be a fan of yours for life. You know, so she went to America and came back with Damien's voice on the track. So I decided, on the strength of that, I'm going to write. Yeah, what do you want to write? And the yeah. first thing said, I want to write a song about Sensimila. I'm going, Joss, I've been trying to stay away from that <laughs> subject. But as it's you, <laughs> let's, go, let's, <laughs> let's, let's do it. And then I wrote a song with her called The Answer. And she featured that as her single from that album. The album's called Water for Your Soul. And um, it's mainly reggae. In fact, there were a lot of people, Vex, when that song was, when that album... For what reason? Because that album was proclaimed the best-selling reggae record of 2015 by Billboard. And people were like, hey, she's not a reggae singer, but she made a reggae album. And the album sold better than all the other reggae albums. A lot of people were upset about it, you know. And uh, But I said, look, she used reggae players from London, you know, Alan Weeks was on that album. Are you kidding? That's a monster. You know, um, I was on that album. Yeah. <laughs> and then I said to her, you know, Joss, there's this thing called dub. And if you make some dub versions of these tunes and put them out as precursors to the album, we might be onto a bigger yeah. winner than you think. And if you press them on a 10-inch dub plate and you sold them like dubs, and then called it Dub for Your Soul, because the album's called Water for Your Soul. And this is Dub Versions to Water for Your Soul, and called Dub for She was like, yeah, I want to do that. And when we'd done it, she put out a deluxe version of the album, which had two CDs in it. One was Water for Your Soul, and the other one was Dub, Dub for, for Your soul. soul. You know, And we also, she pressed some of them on 10-inch vinyl, and she uh, sold probably a couple of thousand of them, and hasn't done anything with it since a, a German record company's been going, what are you going to do about that? Let's put that out. Dennis, it's a great dub album there. You know, but Joss has gone on to other things. Yeah, an incredible vocalist. And she's become a mom now. I know, I saw, yeah, sadly, I saw her recently at a funeral. Oh, um, but yeah, yeah, and she's an incredible artist. She's a lovely person yeah. too. To kind of round up, Dennis, and 
first, yeah, thank you. How do you, how do you look back and reflect on your career? Because it's not done yet. Well, I, I know it's not done yet because I know there's more to cover. I know you still yeah, make music, you, but damn. how do you, when you sit back and look at it, how do you feel? I feel great. I feel like I've achieved most of what I set out to do, and um, to have been given a royal nod uh, from the Queen Elizabeth's last birthday honours, because after that she didn't do any more, her last um, issue of medals to people in in Britain, you know, and she gave me the MBE for my services to music, and I was like, you know what, I'm taking that. But yeah, do you think, I mean, it's, it's always interesting when you talk about those moments where you accept those gongs or those accolades mm. and you find yourself in those places where you may not have ever thought you were ever going to be a part of Absolutely. A lot of people, a lot of the young generation, when they kind of been offered that opportunity, have said, that's not for me. A lot of our generation have been very quick to accept it. I mean, how how do you view that? I mean, because I always think of my mum. If I'm in, I've not been offered one and I probably will never be offered one. But I know that if I was to have said that, she would have gone, okay, that's almost validation for the, the time you spent the doing journey. what it is that you do. And, yeah, well, not just that, but just the our, the entire story from mm. the, the moment they landed as a family, mm. what they wanted. And then and their son's I, getting yeah. an accolade. Yeah, how, I mean, do you, do you well, feel that? For, when for I told the, my mum, she said, you're taking that, right? It was not, are you going to take it? It was, you're taking that. Because I was with Benjamin Zephaniah's producer in Spain, um, we were doing an album, Benjamin's album, called Naked. And um, that was when I was told that Benji had been offered that. And Benji went, I'm not having that. And I know that Linton has turned it down. But I'm me. And I wanted to get into that society to see what it means. What does it do? What frills does it have? Yeah. Why are people uh, up against it or why are people for it? Why are, I'm going to go in there and make my own, you know, have my own opinion on what it is. Uh, I haven't found out yet, but when I do, I'll let the world come, yeah, know. Come back and let us know. Yeah. And um, what's next? You know, you, you say, you mean, you know, there's, there's a past and there's a history, but there's a, still a massive future for you. Because I know, mm. obviously, we tried to do this a couple of weeks ago, but you were busy with the great Carol Thompson. Yeah. Um. So, you know, you're still making music, so... Absolutely. Well, I'm due to um, embark on a, a US uh, thing with Steve McQueen, or should I say, Sir Steve McQueen. Yes. Um, because he tracked me down for a lot of years and then offered me a part in the Lover's Rock of his um, Small Act Small series. series. And um, although I, it was a cameo role... Um, what, Very good you were as well, sir, if I may say what, so. Thank you. <laughs> what, what they did with Silly Games was phenomenal. It got me a lot of enemies because people thought, he must have paid you a lot of money to do that. And I go, it's not about that. The man's honouring the song. Do you know what I mean? And in fact, I wasn't the only person that was involved in that song. Janet Kay was, and she just got an MBE. And, uh, you know, Drummy Zeb, the great drummer from Aswad, who I've always said was the top drummer in the UK. Rest in peace, Rest man. In you know, there was just the three of us that made that. And, um, in fact, when, when they brought me in to interview me, and I read the script, and, and I agreed to do some music for it, I said to Steve, I said, you know, I've done a bit of acting and um 
I wouldn't mind getting a part in this. And there was a part for a Beijing bus conductor. So I thought, this is going to be a laugh. I'm going to be playing my dad in the 21st <laughs> yeah. century Beijing yeah. bus conductor. Yeah. And he went, no, 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 I've got a bigger part than that for you. And I went, oh, my God, I shouldn't have said nothing because now I'm going to have to remember lines. Yeah. You know? And he gave me the part of the neighbour living upstairs, the other, right? But then I'm glad that he didn't give me the bus conductor part because he never saw the bus conductor's face. Yeah. He just saw the ticket yeah, machine. Yeah. <laughs> so you got your moment on the screen. I got my moment on screen. And he didn't tell the other actors um, who I was yeah. until after we'd been shooting. Well, so what are you doing with Steve? Are you We're about... doing something in Los Angeles. Right. Steve wants to talk to me about making a film. <laughs> and, I, and I suspect... Um, I'm going to be the subject of that film, which I don't mind. He's a great director. I mean, after I watched 12 Years a Slave, yeah. that made me cry, boss. Yeah. You know? And when my sister knew I was going to meet Steve, my sister Jean, she said, take a selfie with him and tell him he's the only person to have made me cry by watching TV. I mean, he's, he's an incredible storyteller. Man. You know, listen, if he's going to make a film about your life and your history, it's incredibly well-deserved, Dennis. Mate, I couldn't have think of a, a finer director. Yeah, and I couldn't have think of a finer music subject to have their story told. I'll tell him you said that. <laughs> Please do. Listen, you've been more than generous with your time. I can't, again, I will say, it's genuinely an honour to meet you because, you know, your music has been the soundtrack to my life, my sister's life. My mum's life, sadly, no longer with us at parties. <laughs> you know, my wife mm. and many friends that have kind of danced, enjoyed, you know, you've provided memories and great moments and you've provided a culture and a sound that black Britain and black British people can be incredibly proud of. So Dennis Pavel, mm. MBE, oh. thank you very, very much for being a part of this Google series, Black British Producers Behind Global Albums. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Thank sir. you. Thank you. I'm Adrian Sykes, and this has been Union Black, the Black British Producers Behind Global Albums. Our thanks to Dennis Bavell for sharing his story. Thanks also to Danny D, partner and true pioneer, Engin Hassan, our producer, Yata Wusu, and Chantel McCallum at Google. To check out and discover more stories from Union Black, Go to Google Arts and Culture at artsandculture.google.com. Make sure you share and let us know your thoughts using the hashtag, hashtag Union Black. This has been Union Black, the black British producers behind global albums. Thank you for listening. <laughs>